welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, please become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. We've got some great perks for supporters, including interviews, gifts, live discussions, and even items we pick up on our pilgrimages and other travels. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Help us keep this going. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others to find us. Today, we're talking about the actress Patricia Neal. She's not one of the biggest Hollywood stars whom everyone knows, but she was an important actress in her day. She played some really important roles. Also, she wasn't Catholic until the very end of her long life, but her path to the church and some of the bumps and bruises along the way really make a great story of enduring through trials and suffering with the ramifications of your own mistakes, and then ultimately accepting that only in God's grace will we find peace. Yes, it's a powerful story of deep hurts and courageous forgiveness. We talked about one of her big mistakes in last week's episode about Gary Cooper. Cooper nearly left his wife and daughter for Neil in the early 1950s, and Neil became pregnant with Cooper's child, but she aborted the child, a decision she deeply regretted later in life. And for more on how Cooper made it through those dark days and came out okay, listen to our episode about Gary Cooper. Yes, his is a great story of redemption, and Neil's conversion story is intertwined with his even decades after his death. So, why don't we dive right in? Sure. Patricia Neal was born on January 20th, 1926 in Packard, Kentucky. Packard was a coal mining town, and when we say it was a mining town, we mean it only existed because the mine was there. When the coal ran out, the mine shut down, and the town was abandoned. But that was in the 1940s, so now Packard, Kentucky is just a ghost town. Neil's father was the mine manager, and her mother was the daughter of the town's doctor. So she had a relatively comfortable childhood in a hard scrabble town. Her family was Baptist and they moved to Knoxville, Tennessee when she was still very young. Her first brush with acting was at 10 years old when she attended a performance of a collection of monologues. She was enthralled. And later that year when Christmas was coming, she wrote to Santa Claus, What I want for Christmas is to study dramatics. By the time she was in high school, she was already delivering dramatic readings and had won the Tennessee State Award for Dramatic Reading. Acting success came pretty quickly for her. Her senior year in high school, she apprenticed at the prestigious Barter Theater in Virginia. Then after graduating from high school in 1943, she went to Northwestern University for drama. But she only spent two years there as a drama major before heading to New York and a career on Broadway. She won a Tony in 1947, the first year of the Tonys, and the very next year, she was swept out to Hollywood. So yeah, her star rose fast. She was 21 with a Tony in hand and about to make her screen debut opposite Ronald Reagan in John Loves Mary. She also starred with Reagan in Hasty Heart, both released in 1949. But it was the third film she did during this time that was most significant for her life. That was The Fountainhead, the film based on Ayn Rand's book about standing up and being an individual when all pressures are to be a well-behaved member of the collective. Her co-star in this film was Gary Cooper. 
The Fountainhead was a commercial failure, mostly because Cooper was miscast. Even as great an actor as he was, the role just didn't fit him. But the on-screen passion between Cooper and Neil was real, and it continued off-screen. Cooper was 25 years her senior. He was 48, she was 23. But Cooper had a way with women. It seems he barely tried and just connected on a very deep and personal level, and then neither he nor the woman involved had much inhibition. It happened more than once. I mean, actually, it happened more than a dozen times. So Neil wasn't the only other woman in Cooper's life, but she was one of the two most significant other women who wasn't his wife. As for Neil, she fell deeply in love with Cooper and thought that they really had a future together. There was, of course, just one problem. Well, two. Cooper was married, and he had a daughter. It's a rather large problem. But they persisted in their doomed affair for two years. Neil became pregnant, as we said before, with Cooper's child in 1951. Cooper paid for her to have an abortion. Cooper seriously considered leaving his wife for Neil. He even took Neil on a trip to Cuba, where his dear friend and confidant, the author Ernest Hemingway, lived. He hoped to gain Hemingway's approval of his relationship with Neil and his plan to leave his wife and daughter for her. Hemingway refused to give that blessing. This was the beginning of the end of the affair. Eventually, Cooper's wife found out about the affair, and the rift caused the Coopers to separate for three years, but they did not divorce. The affair ended in 1951, and the trauma of the whole thing caused Neil to have a nervous breakdown. In 1952, she left Hollywood and returned to New York. Later in life, she said that if she could go back and change one thing in her life, it would be to keep that child. The abortion haunted her. The next man in her life came fairly soon after her arrival in New York. That was the British writer Roald Dahl. Yes, the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, the BFG, Matilda, and other very odd but very entertaining books. Neil and Dahl got married in 1953 in New York. To avoid many problems of living in the big city, Roald moved the family to a small village in England outside of London. Over the next 12 years, Neil and Dahl had five children while Dahl wrote and Neil resumed her acting career, first on stage and then in the late 1950s back in Hollywood. Two major films in her career came out in the early 1960s. In 1961, she played the sultry and worldly Emily Eustace, or 2E, Fallonson in the classic Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then in 1963, she played opposite Paul Newman in the Western HUD. She won her only Oscar for this one. But while she was reestablishing her Hollywood star, her private life was marred with tragedy. In 1960, their third child, Theo, was just four months old when his baby buggy was hit by a car. He survived, but he suffered bad brain damage. His parents would have to take on a very active role in his treatment and recovery. Then, in 1962, their eldest child, seven-year-old Olivia, died from encephalitis due to measles. Roald and Patricia were both devastated by Olivia's death, especially since she likely would have survived if they'd been nearer a major hospital. But in small village England, her final affliction was too severe and came on too suddenly to overcome. And then tragedy struck her even more personally. In 1965, when Neil was pregnant with their fifth child, Lucy, Neil had three cerebral aneurysms burst while bathing her daughter, Tessa. Roald found her on the floor. 
But thanks to his experience with their son, Theo, he recognized the symptoms of a stroke and knew exactly what to do and whom to call. She was plunged into a coma for three weeks. She survived the stroke and the subsequent surgery, but she was severely debilitated. Initially, she couldn't speak. She forgot how to walk and her memory was badly affected. The only reason she came out of it was because of the work of her husband, Roald Dahl. He would not give up on her. Again, he drew on lessons he had learned while caring for Theo. Roald developed a therapy regimen of six grueling hours of work every day. He recruited neighbors and friends to help out and keep up with her, forcing her to work on motion, reaching for things, remembering what things were called, and relearning to talk, walk, and do other things for herself. The two years after the stroke was a grueling time, and Patricia came up with all sorts of creative names for her loving husband, like Rolled a Slave Driver and Rolled the Rotten. But it worked. In 1967, she made her return to the public eye in a speech delivered from memory at a charitable event for children with brain damage. Later that year, she was cast in the film The Subject Was Roses. Despite concerns about her ability to memorize lines, she nailed it. She was nominated for an Oscar for that role, though she didn't win. Her final notable role was in the 1971 film The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, in which she played Olivia Walton. And this role was so compelling that the TV series The Waltons was based on it. Though the producers of the show were concerned about her health, so they cast Michael Learned as Olivia for the TV series. The 1970s was a time of blessings and the beginning of one final tragedy for Neil. First, because of her strokes and what it took to recover from them, she became a major supporter of rehabilitation centers and efforts to better understand brain traumas and how caregivers can respond to them. Also, her husband, Roald, literally co-wrote the book on how to recognize the symptoms of things like strokes and how to help patients recover. Much good has come from that experience. Another major moment of grace came out of the blue from a very unexpected place. In the late 1960s, while she was still in recovery from her strokes, a letter came in the mail from Maria Cooper, Gary Cooper's daughter and only child. Neil didn't remember most of the letter later in life, and Roald eventually burned it, but Neil never forgot the three most important words it contained. I forgive you. Neil was floored. The last two times she and Maria had had any interaction, both in the 1950s, Maria had spit on her once and stared her down from a distance the second time. But now Maria was looking for reconciliation, entirely unsolicited. Maria was a devout Catholic, and she had seen how her own father had changed through conversion and eventually died in the full embrace of the church in 1961. I imagine that experience, plus compassion for Neil's own plight, prompted her to reconsider the prudence of holding on to the anger and pain. So she didn't. Yeah. In the early 1970s, Neil and Maria began corresponding and eventually met for breakfast in Neil's New York hotel suite. The poignant embrace when Maria walked in the door helped Neil to heal from the still painful wounds of her relationship with Maria's father. And in her autobiography, Neil relates that during the breakfast, Maria finally asked, Is it true that you were pregnant by my father? To which Neil replied, Yes, I am sorry, but I didn't have it. And Maria answered, it's my loss too. 
I'm the only one. Oh, just such pain and love wrapped up in that exchange. It just goes right to the heart. I mean, the tragedy of abortion, no matter how convenient or necessary it seems at the time, it, it takes away a life who was destined to be someone's sister or brother, someone's aunt or uncle, someone's spouse. It's just, mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, you know, when we first came across that story, that was my first thought is, I, I wonder how Maria must have felt oh, yeah. that her half-sibling... She was the only one. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now we know. Yeah. Anyway, so but before that breakfast was over, Maria asked Neil to write her mother, Veronica. Maria saw this communication as a necessary step for both women to heal from the past hurts and move on in grace. Neil promised to do so, but she couldn't bring herself to do it for a long time. Neil and Maria remained in contact, but didn't see each other again until early 1978 when they bumped into each other in France. Maria sensed that Neil was deeply troubled and asked her about it. Neil poured it all out for Maria, the stress of her son's brain damage, her daughter's death, her own health issues from the stroke, and growing troubles in her marriage. Maria asked her about her faith in God and then said something very important. She suggested that Neil should visit the Abbey of Regina Laudis in Bethlehem, Connecticut. We told the story of Mother Benedict and the founding of Regina Laudis in episode 76, but we haven't yet told the story of the Abbey's most famous nun, Mother Dolores Hart. Mother Dolores, of course, entered the Abbey in 1963 after giving up a blossoming Hollywood acting career. So there was a connection between Mother Dolores and Patricia Neal. Neal didn't immediately take the advice, but in the fall of 1978, she got back in touch with Maria and asked about that Abbey. Maria gave the contact information and some encouragement, and then Neal took the initiative. Neal contacted Regina Laudis and made an appointment to visit. The appointed time, a three-day stay, finally came in May of 1978. 79. Leading up to the visit, Neil wondered what the heck she was doing going to visit a Catholic nunnery. But she went. Armed with her cigarettes and a few bottles of booze to help her through, she went. It ended up being one of the most important and peaceful times of her life. She had no idea how to handle the peace and stillness and beauty and peace. It's peace is worth saying multiple times because it's the most jarring thing about a holy place, like a good Benedictine abbey. It's just so peaceful. She had multiple conversations with one of the nuns who listened to her and asked simple but probing questions. She poured out everything, the traumas of her children, her own health, her increasing doubts about her husband's fidelity, and eventually, everything about her affair with Gary Cooper. She hadn't meant to mention that at all, but under the sister's gentle prodding, she poured it all out. It was a tremendous experience of just letting go, giving it all to God, and it was so important. One important piece of spiritual counsel that the sister gave her concerned her relationship with Cooper. Neil still deeply felt that she and Cooper had something special. She lamented that there never could be anything between them because of Cooper's marriage. But the sister pointed out that, yes, there could be a spiritual bond rather than a physical and emotional one. Neil had never considered that possibility, and it helped her. At the end of the three days, she realized, to her astonishment and gratitude, that she had entirely forgotten about the booze she had brought with her. Yeah. She visited a few more times over the next few years. In 1981, when she saw that Veronica Cooper's second husband had died, she finally summoned the courage to write that letter she had promised she would. Rocky was deeply moved by it. The two women agreed to meet, and the reconciliation was a powerful moment of grace for all involved. Many things were going well for Neil. Many past wounds were experiencing healing, but another deep wound was near at hand. In 1983, Neil found out that her husband, whom she dearly loved, 
had been having an affair for a decade. And the other woman was a publicity agent who had helped guide Neil's comeback and her career in the early 1970s. However, unlike Gary Cooper, Roald Dahl didn't end the affair and save his marriage. He asked for a divorce. Neil was devastated. She returned to Regina Laudis looking for guidance and told them she intended to write a tell-all that would be just scathing. Mother Benedict, a remarkable woman in her own right, convinced her that that would be a very bad idea. Instead, Mother Benedict said, Neil should work with Mother Dolores Hart on a full autobiography of her whole life. Lay it all out. Let God work through the dark parts. For the first few months of this process, she lived at the Abbey as a postulant, helping with chores like cleaning the grill. Five years and 1,200 pages later, her autobiography was completed, and she was a changed, happier, more integrated, and whole woman. She fell in love with the Abbey and told Mother Dolores that she wished to be buried there. Mother Dolores told her she'd have to be Catholic to be buried at the Abbey. Ooh, I'll work on that, she drawled back in her distinctive raspy style. And she did work on it. It took many years, but she did. She also kept up her acting career. She had guest appearances on a few episodes of Little House on the Prairie and Murder, She Wrote, among other small roles. She returned to the Abbey at least once every year for their annual festival. She would do dramatic readings and help raise money for the Abbey. One year during her reading, a massive storm blew in and knocked down the tent they were using. So, Neil financed the construction of a permanent venue and named it the Gary the Olivia Performing Arts Center, after the two most important people in her life. In 1990, a few months before Roald Dahl died, she even worked up the courage to contact her husband, the man whom she still loved, and forgive both him and his second wife, who'd wrecked their marriage. During her last years, Mother Dolores would ask her about becoming Catholic. She told Mother, I want to be Catholic, but not yet. When Mother asked her what she meant, she replied, I like being Catholic when I'm here, but not when I'm not here. Mother pressed her, saying, that's not going to do God any good. He wants you to be Catholic all the time. Well, the time finally came. As she was suffering from lung cancer, incidentally one of the cancers that ultimately killed Gary Cooper, she finally told Mother Dolores, I'm ready to become Catholic. And in March of 2010, she was received into the church. Four months later, she died. And she was indeed buried on the grounds of Regina Laudis Abbey. In the end, she found the love, peace, and generosity that her heart so craved. She was able to receive forgiveness and give it. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Patricia Neal, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory. On Instagram at ACH underscore podcast. Or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media. Beatrix Media.